If you would, let's go back to the book of Philemon. I think probably maybe two more messages in the book of Philemon, and we'll be done with this tiny book. But just by way of review, uh, we've seen that Philemon was a wealthy Christian there at the church of Colossae. It actually made mention that the church was meeting in his house at the time that Paul wrote this. And we see over and over and over again uh, Paul commending him for his love and his faithfulness and his compassion for other people. And Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And as I mentioned, for those who weren't here, I did a whole message on uh, why the Bible would have condemned the type of slavery that took place here in American Britain. It's a totally different thing in the Roman Empire. It's, without going into a lot of detail, it was much more like employment than it was what it was here in America. So certainly Paul is not condoning that. I don't want you to be sidetracked by that. But nevertheless, Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus under his care. And no doubt uh, Philemon cared for him more like a son uh, than he did a slave. No doubt that he had taken great care of him. And apparently Onesimus had stolen something of great value from Philemon, certainly I guess to finance this trip, but he stole and then he ran away. And no doubt that would have hurt Philemon greatly. It would have inconvenienced him and all the things that go with that. And apparently somewhere along the way Onesimus began to have some second thoughts and you know, what he had done was very illegal and very punishable in the Roman Empire. And I, I imagine he began to think about what to do, what's the next step. And so he goes to see the Apostle Paul in prison uh, because Paul had led Philemon to Christ years earlier and obviously Onesimus would have known they had a relationship. And it seems that he sought Paul out to be a mediator between the two. And during that encounter with the Apostle Paul, Onesimus comes to saving faith in Christ. And so Paul has written this letter to his friend Philemon uh, about his conversion, and he asked Philemon uh, not only to forgive him, but to receive him as a brother and not just simply a slave. And so uh, this is what's happening. This is the background and the context. And over the past couple of weeks, we've looked specifically at the high cost of unforgiveness. Uh, Unforgiveness and bitterness is very costly in our lives. That's even true for children of God. We can do that. I've been guilty. I've been there. I've shared my personal experience of that. It can, it can rob us of our relationships. We cannot confine unforgiveness to that one relationship with the offending party. It will affect every relationship in our life. It will affect our rejoicing in the Lord. It will affect our reputation in Christ. It will affect our testimony with others. And last week we honed in on the fact that it, it will rob us of our personal restoration. You know, restoration can be a personal thing, uh, whether or not somebody else is reconciled to us or not. We're not in total control of what somebody else does. But restoration is all about forgiveness and releasing that person of their debt toward us. Not, you know, as I mentioned, forgiveness is not the offending party paying a debt to us. We, we feel like it is sometimes. Well, if they do this, then I can forgive. Well, you may be waiting for a long time. Forgiveness is not about that. It's about releasing the offending party from their debt to you, which is what uh, Jesus did for us. We can be made new. 
when we release others from their debt. And our personal happiness and wholeness, it can't be contingent upon the opinions and actions of other people. But today, we want to go a step further in this process. We've talked about restoration, uh, but today we're going to talk about reconciliation. That is, being brought into a right relationship with the one who has hurt us, or maybe vice versa. Maybe you making things right that you've done to offend or hurt somebody. But the idea of reconciliation, that's a beautiful Bible word. And the idea is to take something that was afar off and to bring it near. And so that's what a reconciled relationship is. We were reconciled unto God because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And with that in mind, understanding that this is exactly what Paul is asking Philemon to do with Onesimus, to receive him. What's interesting about Philemon, I've mentioned to you, that the book of Philemon is the only letter that Paul writes that doesn't technically have any doctrine in it. It's nowhere in there. And yet the principles of what Paul is showing here and what he's asking Philemon to do, it, it could not be any more clear. You won't, you won't see the word forgiveness in there at all, or unforgiveness for that matter. You won't find the word reconciliation in there. But I tell you what you will find in our text today, we're going to see the word receive three different times. That's exactly what reconciliation is. And so with that in mind, let's read our text. We've seen from the first seven verses that Paul is commending Philemon's Christian character here. And in verse 8, he goes on to make his request of Philemon. We see that word, wherefore. We just talked about that this morning uh, in Derek's Sunday School. When you see the words, therefore or wherefore in the Bible, you need to back up and see what it's there for. I'm not going to word it just like he did, probably because I would get all twisted up like a pretzel. But, but the point is, when you see the word wherefore like you do in verse 8, Paul is saying, because of everything that I just said to you in verses 1 through 7, wherefore, he was talking about the goodness of God, he was talking about uh, Philemon's Christian love and reputation, wherefore, now we're going to ask him to do something. Um, verse 8, wherefore... Though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, but now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again, thou therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be, as it were, of necessity, but willingly. That's an important phrase. Uh, verse 15, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever, not now as a servant, but also but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand, I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, and I just thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, to preach your word and to be with the saints and to sing 
uh, these great songs of truth. And God, I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self. And God, I know what I'm preaching about this morning. I've been here. I've experienced it. I've seen the damage. I've felt the damage that it's caused. And no doubt, as Christians, we can become susceptible to unforgiveness or hard feelings or grudges. And God, it's so subtle that we don't even realize sometimes how it takes root and when it takes root in our hearts. And I pray if that's somebody here at the sound of my voice, whether uh, here in the sanctuary this morning or maybe online, somebody listening, uh, God, that you would reveal it to them, but also that you would restore them, that you would give them reconciliation, you would give them freedom that they've been robbed of and joy in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if somebody's lost and they're still in sin debt to you, that they would be saved today, that they would repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, empty me of sin and self and just fill me your Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. So this morning, I want to look at the thought of the roadblocks to reconciliation. The roadblocks to reconciliation and you know, reconciliation is such a, it's such a wonderful thing. I mean, it's a very special and precious thing when two people who at once were at odds with each other, that everybody knew there was a problem, there was a tension, there was a, maybe even a hatred or a bitterness, and yet you see them maybe years later and they have this wonderful relationship changed. How did they go from hating one another to loving each other on such a deep level And hopefully that question can be answered with what Jesus has done in our hearts and lives. What a great testimony, even among believers, to see that in real time. And so if it is such a wonderful thing, why is it so rare? It is a rare thing, at least in my experience. Maybe you've seen that happen a lot, but I sure haven't. It's a rare thing, and that's, to me, one of the things that makes it more valuable is because you don't see it every day. But because it is so wonderful, why is it such a rare thing? I believe there's some things that make the work of reconciliation uh, very difficult. But as we've seen here in our text, that's exactly what Philemon asked, uh, uh, excuse me, what Paul asked of Philemon concerning Onesimus. Because as we see in the text, three times he asked him to receive him, not only as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. Now, the word receive here, it means literally to take in or to offer friendship. And I like what Thayer's Lexicon said. It said to grant access to one's heart. Wow. That means vulnerability, doesn't it? We don't like to talk about that, especially with people that have hurt us. And that's exactly what Paul is asking Philemon to do. Now, the overwhelming majority of the time, if true personal restoration has taken place, then at least some form of reconciliation can take place as well. We're going to look at that in detail. Now, as a general rule, the people that hurt us the worst are the people that we love the most. Is that not true? I mean, if, they, if, they, if you didn't have that love for them, they wouldn't even have the power to hurt you like they have. Isn't that true? I mean, I don't get all bent out of shape about what I see people on the news doing. Sometimes it bothers me. Sometimes I'm burst. Sometimes I pray for those people on the spot. But if I'm honest, it's not dominating my daily thought life. It's the people that I deeply love that have the power to deeply hurt me. And the same is true for you. And what that means is, whether or not you'd ever say it out loud, you need those people in your life. And that's what reconciliation 
is all about. Um, now, um, let me preface this message by saying that I don't... Now, this is really important because if you don't remember this, the rest of the message may get convoluted. So I want to preface this at the beginning. I don't believe that God requires us to be a floor mat for anyone. I don't think that's what forgiveness is all about. I don't, I don't think that's what restoration is about, and I know that's not what reconciliation is about. I don't think that God expects us to put ourselves in compromising or dangerous situations for the sake of forgiveness and reconciliation. Like, for example, uh, I don't believe that God requires somebody to be reconciled to their spouse who is a serial adulterer and has no idea, no thought of changing that. I don't believe, I don't have Bible for that. I don't believe somebody is bound in that situation. Now, I could see in that situation how the, the serial adulterer could use that as a club against their spouse and beat them up and say, well, hold on now. You're supposed to forgive me 70 times 7. That's what Jesus said. That ain't what he meant. That, listen, that is not forgiveness. That is not reconciliation. And as we're going to see today, there is no such thing as true reconciliation without true repentance. That, that's not what is being asked of us. Uh, to give another example, I don't think uh, that God requires us and expects us to put ourselves in a dangerous situation. Maybe there's some sexual abuse going on. Maybe there's some physical abuse or some type of dangerous situation. And I could see how the abuser could twist that and use that as ammunition against his victim. Well, hold on now. God says you're supposed to forgive. That does not mean and that does not require and presuppose that you put yourself in a dangerous situation for the sake of forgiveness. That's not what God is asking us to do. I believe there are some exceptions, but I will say this, that is the exception and not the rule. Because I believe that most of the time, if there's true restoration in somebody's heart, there can be at least some form of reconciliation in that relationship. So please understand and, and kind of keep that in parentheses as we go along because I'm going to move on from that and talk about the rule rather than the exception. Um, now, if somebody is in those situations and they need help, maybe in this church, talk to somebody, reach out to somebody, reach out to me. Um, I know if that's going on in a family, sometimes that's difficult to deal with. People don't feel like they have an advocate outside the family. I've had to deal with it before, and I'll be glad to do it again. But let's move on from that. Um, I like what Romans twelve eighteen says. It says, if it be possible, as much lieth in you live peaceably with all men. That means sometimes it's not possible. You, you can't be responsible for what somebody else does. But with that being said, I believe that outside of that, reconciliation is possible. Um, because that's what Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 8, but God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I Think about 1 Corinthians 5, verses 18 and 19. Uh, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Isn't that a beautiful statement? That Christ did not impute our sin unto us if we're saved. That means He didn't hold it against us. It didn't mean we didn't have an offense. 
It didn't mean we didn't sin against God. He didn't hold it against us. God the Father held it against Christ. Wow. What a ministry of reconciliation. But if it is so wonderful, as I said, why is it so rare? And for our purposes this morning, the question that I really want to wrestle with is what are the roadblocks to reconciliation? I've got three things that I've done this morning. Number one, I believe the very first roadblock to any kind of meaningful reconciliation is an unwillingness to repent. An unwillingness to repent. That could be on both parties or just one. But look at verses 8 and 9 here. It says, Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee that which is convenient. What Paul is saying here, he's basically saying, you know what, Philemon? He said, I would like to talk about something else than what I'm about to talk about. I would like to talk about old times or what's going on in the family or something that's more convenient. But Paul was too good of a friend to do that. Instead, he's going to talk about something really serious that's going to require Philemon to do something difficult. And that's when he gets to verse 9 and he says, Yet for love's sake, we need to underline, highlight, circle, everything we can do, we need to highlight that phrase. Yet for love's sake... I rather beseech, that word beseech means to beg. He's earnestly asking, passionately asking him uh, this question. He says, being such an one in Paul the age and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and he's going to go on as we saw to ask him to receive and forgive uh, Philemon. Now this is very important. And if we don't get this, nothing else is really going to matter. You know, Paul could have pointed to the letter of the law. He could have browbeat Philemon. He, he could have done a lot of things. He could have guilt-shamed him. But instead, when he asked him to forgive, he points to love. And he said, for love's sake. Now, we know from Ephesians, we've already seen that God commands us and actually asks us to forgive for three words, for Christ's sake. We, we can't always forgive someone because they deserve it or because we want to, but we ought to be able to forgive others on the basis of how Christ has forgiven us. Well, he does essentially the same thing for love's sake, for love, the love of Christ and the love of people, the same things that Paul pointed out about Philemon in the first seven verses, for love's sake. That has to be our motivation. Lord, this person's hurt me, but for your sake, I want to forgive them. Lord, I'm, I'm worried about maybe opening myself up or making myself vulnerable, but, but Christ, Lord, for your sake I'll, and by your grace, I'll do that. It has to be for love's sake. Um, and if we're going to forgive, repent, make move toward reconciliation, it, it's going to be because of our love for Christ and our love for people. That's the only thing that works long term. Everything else is just fake. Um, the work of reconciliation is hard work because it requires two people humbling themselves. No wonder it's a rare thing. Not only do you have to, have, uh, to find one person willing to repent, you have to find two or however many parties have been offended in this ordeal. Uh, we have to find people to repent and humble themselves before God and before each other. But honestly, though, now this is something, too, that you'll miss if you don't understand this part of the story. Paul has written this letter to Philemon, but he's gotten Onesimus to deliver it to Philemon. Now think about that picture for a minute. Philemon's been hurt by Onesimus stealing from him and running away for, for maybe weeks or months, we don't know how long. He's been gone. He doesn't know where Onesimus is. He's probably had to hire more help. He's been perhaps even festering over this thing. And then all of a sudden, 
Onesimus walks in the door one day. I imagine everybody, every family member stops what they're doing. Every servant stops what they're doing. The record scratches. There's an awkward silence. And here we have Philemon and Onesimus face to face. I don't even know if any words were said before Onesimus hands him that letter that's been signed and sealed by Paul himself. And I don't even know, maybe this is just my sanctified imagination, but it certainly is a possibility that Onesimus stood there as Philemon read this letter from Paul. I imagine that was a very touching scene, don't you think? And maybe, just maybe, I would like to think that Philemon embraced Onesimus and rejoiced that he had come to saving faith in Christ and that God had used this whole ordeal to bring him to saving faith in Christ. I really believe that's what happened. We'll find out, but I really believe that's what happened. And what a testimony that would have been for everybody involved in the situation that knew the details. What a testimony. I mean, this would have been very reminiscent of the whole prodigal son coming home to the father, would it not? This was a big deal. And so, uh, what a great thought. I wonder if Philemon's wife and son, all the other servants saw that. I believe they did. I don't think this was a private thing. Maybe it was, but I don't think that it was. And now, we don't know what Philemon's response was, but Paul certainly had confidence that he would forgive and do the right thing, and I believe that he did. I don't think there's a whole lot of assumption there. But the question is, now we look at Onesimus. Now, Onesimus repented. What a wonderful thing. I mean, to humble himself and go back to his master having stolen. And honestly, like I said, the Romans didn't put up with that. You stole something, it could be proven, you're going to be in big trouble. They weren't going to send you a time out. And so he is literally risking his life depending on the decision that Philemon makes. That's humility, is it not? That, that is being willing to accept whatever comes your way, taking responsibility for the things that you've done, for the risk of reconciliation. And so Onesimus did repent. But, but what happens when we run into a person that doesn't repent? Well, first of all, let me say this. You better make sure that you repent because that's between you and God. You have no control over what somebody else does. You better make sure you repent. And it can't be this situation, well, if they get right and if they do this and if they, then I'll, no, no. That's not how this whole thing works. If God did that, if if the Lord Jesus Christ did that, if if He had a list of all our grievances against Him, are you kidding me? What if if we could get get a projector or something to put all of our sins and grievances against God on this for everybody to see? I would crawl in a hole somewhere and never come out. But what if He was to hold that against us? And what if He was to say, well, now, you need to, you need to do this? We would have never got it. It would have never happened. That's not how this works. You need to make sure you repent first. But second, if you do your part to make things right, then at that point, you have placed everything in their end of the court. Everything. It's all on them. There's nothing between you and God at that point, and there's nothing between you and them except what's on their shoulders. You've been released, and now it's all on them, which, by the way, I've seen God use that before. I've seen Him work in people's lives because of the weight of that guilt. Um, Paul said in the book of Acts, he makes a very amazing statement. He made a statement that he always strove, he exercised himself to live a life where he had a conscience that was void of offense toward God and man. That's Acts 24 and verse 16. What a challenge to us to live a life that we're void of 
of a conscience that is guilty of offense with God or man. We ought to go to bed at night and be able to say that. That, that ought to be a goal for us. Um, you can't put a price tag on going to bed with a clean conscience like that. Now, in, in my situation, I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, uh, you know, that my dad had really hurt me a few different times in life, and for about a total of four years, it really controlled my life as far as my thoughts, my joy, those things. And uh, I don't want to get in that too much again, but I will say this, in that particular situation, uh, I was restored. Uh, I reached out to him. I wrote him a letter, and I did not get the response that I wanted. I didn't. I, there, was no, there was not, I never felt like even to this day there was any real repentance. But I tell you what happened. There was still a reconciliation on our part to a degree, and what I mean by that is, you know, we, we can talk on the phone, we're fine, there's no animosity there, we see each other at holidays, you know, um, he's, he's in assisted living now, and for his whole life, he's always liked to listen to sports talk radio, and he didn't have a radio, so I sent him a radio like the one he used to have when I was a kid, and, and he sent me a picture of that there, that was, that was really neat. But, but I did, I gave him a gift, and I'll tell you what the gift was. Whenever I had gotten things right with the Lord, and I wanted to make things right with Him, and I, I sent that letter. Uh, eventually, we did meet up, but in both in the letter and in conversation, I told him this, and I, and I listen, please understand, I am not bad-mouthing my dad at all, not, not one bit. But I think it's important to understand how this worked out and what it might mean for you. But I, I told him, I said, Dad, more than anything in this world, I said, I want a real relationship with you. There's nothing in this world I would want more than that. But I said, it has to be based on trust and honesty and reality. And I said, if we're honest, we've, ne- we've never had those things. And I said, that's my gift to you. It's always on the table. And he's never dealt with those things that he knew I was talking about. But that's not on me, that's on him. And that's what relationships have to be built on. And so what I'm saying is there's no animosity, there's no hatred, there's no vengeance, but our relationship is never going to be deep until the 800-pound gorillas are dealt with. That's true in every life. And so the person that's hurt you and offended you, they may never make things right. But if things are right in your heart and life, there can be a reconciliation that's at no risk to you. And that's what I'm trying to say. And so that's what you, that's what you have to understand and, and, and get out. And so I'll say this, if you need to be reconciled to someone, listen, humble yourself, repent, make it right. It's like my pastor that I, at the church where I got saved, I used to always say it's always easier to give roses while they're living. Isn't that true? And I'll say this, and man, I tell, I, I'll, I'm going to tell you this. And when I say this, it makes me want to crawl in a cave and just hide because I don't, I don't know that I'm there. But this is probably the greatest act of forgiveness and reconciliation that I've ever seen in my life. But my radio co-host, when I was on the radio in Tuscaloosa, my co-host was a much older man than me. And uh, his, his, we call him Big Al. But um, anyway, Al... Um, he was married for 24 years. I mean, he, I'm telling you, this is mo- one of the most gracious men that I've ever met in my life. And honestly, when I, when I see him, I think about Christ. I really mean that. And 
he was married for 24 years, and I almost fell on the floor when he told me this. But he said after 24 years, he said, he said he didn't think they had any problems in their marriage. Everything was good. There was no arguing. There was no fighting. I mean, obviously, nobody's perfect. There's no perfect marriage. But one day his wife just comes to him and said, Look, I'm, I'm out. I'm gone. I, I, I just, she said, I don't have a reason. He said, she said, You've done nothing but been good to me. But she said, I got married way too young. And she said, these 24 years I've been bitter because I've thought about the things that I've missed. I want to be my own person. I want to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. Now, I understand at this time they have a son. He's probably fixing to be a teenager, early teens, somewhere in that age range. And, and it, of course, it ripped his heart out. He didn't know what to do, but, but he, what's, what, the reason the conversation got started in the first place between me and him is because he had mentioned that his wife, he, he ended up remarrying, and his ex's wife, she remarried, that they actually are able to get together for holidays to celebrate with their son. I'm talking about both spouses and the son. And I said, how? How do you, how do, you do that? <laughs> and he said, but it's because of the decision I made when she broke my heart. And I said, what was that? He said, when she dropped that bombshell on me, he said, I knew I had two choices. He said, I could either hate her as my ex-wife or I could love and respect her as the mother of my child. And I said, wow. <laughs> wow. Now, since then, she's come to him and asked his forgiveness because it just wasn't the right thing to do. And, but wow. That he, he could love her in this capacity and respect her in this capacity as the mother of his child, even though she had broken his heart and now she was going to be his ex-wife. I don't know that I'm there, folks. I'll be honest. But I tell you, you think that's crazy. I could never do that. I never would do that. I can think of a Savior by the name of Jesus Christ who came into this world and willingly died by the hand of His own creatures, and He forgave us. The murder of the innocent, spotless Son of God, and yet He is willing to forgive us. (laughs) Wow. It takes a special connection with God to do that, but I, I believe that's real. And, and, but, but you see what Al did in one decision? He made a decision to be restored within himself and to be reconciled in a capacity that was not going to be a risk to him. That's, that's a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Man, it's hard to do. You have grace to do that. But so I believe a lack of repentance, a lack of humility is a roadblock to reconciliation. But number two, and I've got to go quickly. Y'all are not amening or, or listening quick enough. But, man, this is important. We've got to get this. Uh, but the second roadblock to reconciliation, I believe, is a wrong perception of ourselves. Uh, man, we're rampant with that. I hope you realize that. And now, listen, again, I want to preface this. I have no doubt that you have endured at some point in your life real hurt, real problems, real heartbreak, and I acknowledge those things exist. I've experienced them myself. But it's been my experience in over 15 years of pastoring, if I'm honest, I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but I would say the overwhelming majority of the offenses that have caused divisions in families and in churches have been nothing burgers. Nothing. I mean nothing. Making mountains out of molehills. And people tend to specialize in doing that. And, but the question is why? Well, I tell you why. It's because so many people uh, they think so highly of themselves that the very idea 
that someone might commit the slightest offense against them is unthinkable. How dare you offend me? They, wouldn't, they might not say that out loud. That's what they think. That's why they're so, you know, there's some people out there just ready for a fight. They love chaos. They're looking for somebody to offend them. And if something's not there, they're going to make it up. Um, <laughs> I thought about it like this. Folks like that are kind of like a bear trap. They're, they're, you know, if you set a, a big metal bear trap in the woods and you tap that trigger, it's going to clamp with hundreds of pounds of bone-crushing pressure. And a person like that is like that bear trap. They're, number one, they're just ready to snap. They're just at the slightest thing. Number two, they're just stressed out all the time, just like that trap is under so much pressure. But what's interesting is a bear trap is so sensitive that even if something smaller taps it, like a rabbit or even a bird, it's, it's just going to be overkill for that kind of pressure of what actually has stepped on that trap. You know, the, the bear trap will turn a rabbit into fur, just evaporate into fur and a bird into feather. It's just overkill. That's how people like that, that are. That's what they're like, is that bear trap. And they can't even enjoy life because they're so miserable. They're just waiting for somebody to step on them. And uh, let me say this too. The things that people value the most are the areas where they're the most easily offended. I know that's right. You go to tearing down somebody's idols, they'll get upset real quick. But let, let me give you this example. Let's pretend that I, I took my keys and I went outside and I got a rock out of the parking lot and I scratched up that rock. You think anybody would be upset about that? Oh, I hope not. I mean, can you imagine calling 911 and reporting that to the police? Hey, I just want to report this rock that got scratched up. They'd be like, what? Because the rock has no value. You scratch it up all you want to. Uh, what about if I was to go to a used car lot and take that same key and start scratching up used cars. Well, now we've done something. You know why? Because we have harmed something of value. And that salesman, he's going to be calling the cops, and they're going to take that seriously. What happens if I was to take that same key and go scratch up a new Mercedes or something? Well, now we're really up in arms. Why? Because of the value of what was harmed. And that's what happens when, when somebody values themselves above everything else in this life, every little scratch that comes their way, they're going to lose their mind. How dare you offend me? You know what their problem is? They have a very warped sense of who they are. They think way too highly of themselves. And the offense usually comes through the value of the thing that is violated instead of the degree of the actual offense. And... The thing is, with somebody like that, there's no grace for anybody else at all because others have no value in comparison to the Almighty Self. Uh, I think about what Psalm 119 and verse 165 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. When you love the Word and you love the Lord more than you love yourself, there's not a whole lot of room to be offended about everything. Um. Some people thrive off chaos and drama. Their lives would be meaningless without it. I, listen, I've counseled people, and it took me a long time to figure out that some people don't want help. They don't want to change. They don't want things to get better because then the chaos goes away and they have nothing to talk about. They lose all their excuses to complain and whine. All of the drama leaves their life, all the excitement. They love and thrive in their chaos. But such should never be true 
of a child of God. Now, some people, they water and fertilize their offenses and grievances every day of their life, and it's wicked. And it's way too much work. If you just leave it alone and give it to God, that thing would eventually die out. No, we have to go out there and we need to water and, and fertilize our offenses. Make sure they got plenty of sunlight. Uh, make sure that the pesticide is out so nothing kills it. We have to preserve our grievances. It's wicked and it's selfish. And you know, some people, I, I've come across some people, they don't even know, they couldn't even tell you why they hate some people so much. They can't even tell you why they're so upset. I'll tell you what it reminded me of. Uh, just recently, I, I saw again that uh, episode of the Andy Griffith Show where uh, they got the feud going on between the Wakefields and the Carters. If you'll remember, the, the car, one of the sons of the Carters wanted to marry one of the daughters of the Wakefields, and they had been feuding for like 80-something years, and they, were, they didn't want that marriage to take place, and so Andy's trying to figure out how to get rid of this feud, and so he's trying to figure out what they were fighting about, and he goes to talk to Mr. Wakefield, and he said, well, you know, um, I don't even know why we're feuding. He said, well, what did your dad tell you? Well, he didn't know either. Well, what did his dad tell you? Well, he didn't know either. They didn't even know why. So he goes to talk to Mr. Carter, my favorite part of the episode. He's talking to Mr. Carter, and he's like, why are y'all feuding? He said, because he's a Wakefield. Well, but why are you shooting at one another? Because we're feuding. He said, well, well, why are you feuding? Because he, he's a Wakefield. I mean, just, he, couldn't, he couldn't give a reason. And I feel like that's how a lot of people are in the Baptist church. They don't even know. They just feel like they got to fight somebody somewhere all the time. Grow up. Listen, that's a, that's a warped self-image that doesn't recognize that without Christ we're all lost sinners and without the grace and mercy of the Lord we would bust hell wide open. We deserve death. It's awful hard to condemn somebody else when you recognize your own lot, and that is hell. We deserve death. And by the way, if you're taking notes, I've got three words of some great pastoral advice, okay? Get over yourself. Get over yourself. In fact, you have my permission, and when I die, you can put that on my headstone. Because I think it would be awesome if a hundred years from now, total strangers would be walking through the cemetery and they see... Here lies Brandon Vaughn, born November 15, 1984, died whenever. Get over yourself. That would just be awesome, okay? Get over yourself. And so one of the major roadblocks to reconciliation is a wrong perception of yourself. You think way too much of yourself. That's why you can't have grace for anybody else because they've offended the almighty self. Get over yourself. So a, a, a wrong view or a warped view of self um, can be a roadblock to reconciliation. But lastly, thirdly, and I'm done, I believe another roadblock to reconciliation is a weak view of grace. Just, just quickly, I'm going to skip through Philippians. I'm going to pick out some verses because I want to prove a point. Look at verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Go to verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5. Hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. Um, verse 6, that the communication of thy faith may be effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. Yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Go to verse 25. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Now that wasn't even all the times that Paul referenced Jesus Christ. It's probably about half. 
but just for the sake of time, I gave you half in this short book. And keep in mind, the Apostle Paul, uh, he was in prison, chained to a Roman guard, awaiting his execution. He could have been bitter against the Romans. He could have been bitter against God. He could have been upset, but you don't see that in the language here. Because he's not all about Paul, he's all about Jesus Christ. Because Paul knew where he came from, he had Christians murdered. He made orphans out of Christian children. And when he was on the road to Damascus to go kill Christians, the grace of God turned him into a Christian. And so he knew where he came from. The problem is we don't remember where we came from. And we got a weak view of grace and we can't offer grace to others. Well, listen to this. If you had not got anything else, this may be one of those things you need to get. One of the greatest single cures for bitterness and relationship problems is when we become more upset by how we have offended God than by what others have done to offend us. God help us. Now again, I realize that genuine hurt exists, but no one has done more to hurt us than what we did to Jesus Christ. You understand this. Even if your pain is real, and I'm not disagreeing that it isn't, but listen, nobody has ever tortured you physically as far as I'm talking about whipping you with a cat of nine tails, uh, mashing a crown of thorns on your head, nailing you to a cross. Nobody has ever done those things to you. And yet that's what Christ did because of us and for us. And so God is not doing this whole mentality of do as I say and not as I do. He's been there. Nobody ever suffered like him. The amount of physical and spiritual torture he went through, and yet he forgave, and it leaves us without any kind of excuse. Oh, but you don't know what I've been through. No, I don't, but I know what he went through because of us. And he forgave us when we didn't deserve it. I think about Micah 7 and verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. You know that grace is, is when God gives us what we don't deserve. But mercy is when he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And let me say this, when we don't delight in mercy, it's because we have a weak view of the mercy of God. We aren't thankful for the mercy of God. It's like the parable that Jesus gave about the man who was forgiven much by the king, and yet when given the opportunity, he could not even forgive his neighbor of little. He had him thrown in prison. We should strive for reconciliation in our broken relationships. We should strive for peace and unity and mercy and grace. And if those things can't be achieved, it shouldn't be because we didn't do our part. Paul asked Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. God is asking us to do the same with those who have offended us. And if there's something you need to do to be reconciled with someone else, as I said, why not do it today while they're living? Whether it's writing a letter, making a phone call, making a visit, uh, whatever the case is, just do it. Just do it. And I know that's hard work. And I know that our society doesn't value that. You know, forgiveness and humility are scorned in our society. It's the narcissists who are worshipped. And that's at every level of our society. But it's more powerful and it's more difficult to forgive, to be restored and be reconciled. I'll close with this illustration and I'm done. But this has always been amazing to me. But in November of 2003, Gary Ridgway pleaded guilty to 54 counts of murder. He would later admit to killing more than double that number, making him the most 
prolific serial killer in U.S. history and earning his nickname, the Green River Killer, after where he dumped his bodies there on the Green River. And as he was convicted, and in order to avoid trial, he actually pleaded guilty so he wouldn't have to go through all the rigmarole. But what did happen is when he pleaded guilty for weeks and weeks, he had to sit there for eight plus hours a day as the court gave the uh, family members of the victims a chance to talk or speak to Gary Ridgway. You can only imagine how many relatives of that many people. It took weeks. And toward the end, one of the, it may have been the last day, certainly toward the end, um, the relative of his, one of his 16-year-old victims, Linda Rule, uh, her father was allowed to speak. His name was Robert Rule. And you can understand that for weeks, all these people have said, understandably, I hate you. You took my loved one. I hope you burn in hell. And a lot of things I wouldn't and couldn't say from the pulpit, understandably. Um, But when Robert Rule gets up, he was very short. And I'll quote you exactly what he said. Now understand, through this whole process, uh, Gary Ridgway has not even blinked. He's just stone-faced. No emotion whatsoever. He couldn't care less. But Robert Rule gets up to the stand and he said, Mr. Ridgway, I look at him in the face now of the man that's killed his daughter. And he says, Mr. Ridgway, there are people here that hate you, but I'm not one of them. You have made it very difficult to live up to what I believe, and that is that God says that we are to forgive. And so he says, sir, you are forgiven. And he went and he sat down, and Ridgeway was weeping uncontrollably because forgiveness is more powerful than hatred. It's also harder to do. That's why we have to have God's help to do it. But we can. You can be restored personally, and you can be reconciled in your relationships by the power of God. It can happen if you let it. You can be set free today.